Well, you guys hanging in there this morning? <laughs> That's weak. So, uh, we're in the time of year that is least pleasant to me because I like to be comfortable in my house. Outside, I don't mind being cold or hot, but in my house, I like to be just right, which just really means never warm, right? Uh, are we the only ones who've turned our uh, unit from heat to cool in the last week or two? Maybe just us, uh, but, but we're there right now. So I know it's our first time uh, experiencing fall in Georgia, so we'll see uh, when it flips uh, entirely to heat. But I know you play this game in Texas twice a year for a number of weeks, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So we'll see what it's like here. We're going to be in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 37 this morning, if you want to find that in your Bibles, Ezekiel chapter 37. Uh, but while you're finding that, I just want to say this. And if, if you are here this morning, if you're joining us uh, in person, if you're joining us online, and there are spaces or places in your life where you just know you need God to bring new life, you need God to revive, you're in a good place, you're in a good spot today to hear a word from Him about who He is as the God who brings new life. God who brings new life. But I want to catch us up along this kingdom journey from where we were last week. Last week we looked at the battle between David and Goliath, between the, the Israelites and the Philistines. And we saw, I hope, in there precursors and foreshadowing of the gospel. Of what God does on behalf of his people as he slays the giants of sin and death on our behalf. And attributes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. The victory Christ won on our behalf. Um, that period in the life of God's kingdom movement is, is simply called uh, the area or, or the period of the kings. Uh, the people of God pled with him. They begged for a king. And even though God said, that's not going to be good for you, they said, but we want it. And he said, it's not going to go well, but we want it. So God gave them a king in Solomon. Um, Sol well, not in Solomon, in Saul. Saul did well for a while. Um, and then he drifted, and then he drifted. And one of the most terrifying phrases in Scripture we find said about Saul's life, that due to his continued disobedience and arrogance, that God removed his spirit from Saul. God raised up David. David was anointed. And David, as a godly young man, even when God's spirit and favor had been removed from Solomon, and David knew he'd been anointed. He was the next king. He would not lay a hand on Solomon. He said, look, God raised Solomon up, and it'll be God's job to, to bring Saul. Uh, Saul. I don't know why I keep saying that. Saul. God raised Saul up, and it will be God's job to bring Saul down. God does. David becomes the king. And if David is the absolute high point of the Old Testament, the period of exile and prophets that we'll look at in a minute was certainly the low point, right? So David kingdom is the high point. He increases the territorial boundaries of, of Israel more than any other king does. He feels the strongest army. He's the most capable, clear leader that Israel has had in generations. But he's a man made of clay, right? David's not perfect. If you know his story, uh, he had not only the ability to sin, but to sin big. <laughs> um, so David was human. Uh, Solomon follows David. As the third king in this period of kings. I knew I'd get to Solomon eventually. Um, and Solomon reigns pretty well. After Solomon, there's some problems. And the kingdom ends up splitting. 
If you've ever known people wrestling over power, that's not a new human phenomenon, right? So the kingdom splits into a northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom of Judah. Around, we're not exactly sure, in the 920s, 924, 926, sometime in there, 10th century B.C., the kingdom splits. Samaria becomes the capital of Israel in the north, Jerusalem the capital of Judea in the south, and the people of God live this way for a couple of hundred years. They're divided, uh, you've got different kings, prophets coming on the scene, and then Assyria conquers, the Assyrian army, the Assyrian empire, conquers the northern kingdom of Israel um, in 722 B.C. So Assyria was just a brutal ancient military powerhouse. They roll down over Israel, they conquer Israel, and then in 587, well 597, first of all, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon moves into uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, and they really occupy most of the southern kingdom, and things go along okay for about a decade, right? Um, and then there's all kinds of stirring and rebellions among the Jewish people in Judah, and Nebuchadnezzar has had enough, and in 587, 586 BC, he just uh, besieges Jerusalem destroys Jerusalem and destroys the temple. Destroys the temple. And he carries off into exile, into Babylon, modern-day Iraq, most of the notable people from the southern kingdom, right? The, the political and religious leaders, priests, kings, um, those who were wealthy, financially well-off, tribal leaders, uh, thousands are deported, carried off into a foreign land. And the, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple was so stunning to them. It's hard for us to imagine in American minds. Um, the closest, we don't even have anything uh, with regard to our faith and religion that could get close enough uh, to stunning us enough. But if you can imagine a physical army moving from the east coast and the west, I mean, can we admit it's kind of hard to imagine them moving from the north and the south? But let's imagine somehow a predominant military force lands on the east or west coast and moves in. Maybe from the East Coast they move in and they actually move into Washington, D.C. and they level the city, right? I mean, they destroy the Washington Monument, the Jefferson Monument. They destroy the Capitol Building, the Supreme Court, the White House is leveled and in ruins. This, this was the, the, the picture of what the people of God were, dis, were experiencing during this time. And they believed God was completely tied to the land, Right? So where was God? They, they had basked for so long in what they believed was their uh, favored status as God's people. They never really understood that they were simply chosen for a purpose. That they were not an end unto themselves. That they were created by God to be a light to the nations, to all people. And so the prophets come on, and it's in this time that Ezekiel, the prophet we're going to look at today, 6th century B.C., comes on the scene and he's ministering to Judean exiles in Babylon. He's ministering to the people of God who've been carried off. And all that they knew and all that they hoped for and really all that they understood about God had been blown apart, had been decimated. And God works through Ezekiel and God works through the other prophets on the scene at this time. Let's look now and pick up this story once you get a little uh, bit of an understanding of where the people of God are in this time. And I'll just say this. 
If we could set aside all of our church pretending this morning, you and I have a lot of places in our lives where we desperately need God to breathe new life. Because we don't ever drift toward our hearts being on fire for God. We don't ever drift toward spiritual vitality. We don't ever drift toward Christ's likeness. We drift toward decay. We drift toward death. We drift toward dryness. Let's look at chapter 37, a chapter that for many of you in here will be familiar. But let's hear a word from God this morning as we work our way through this chapter. Verse 37, beginning with, or chapter 37, I'm sorry, beginning with verse 1. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. Let me pause there and just say, a bit of a strange place to be led by the Lord, is it not? Of all the places that God could whisk me up by his spirit and lead me and drop me off, I'm thinking like the Swiss Alps, a valley of dry bones would not make my list. And these are dry bones, right? They've been out there for a while. This is not bodies that the birds are still feasting on. These are dry bones. Decay has already taken its place. There is no life to be seen. And I'm going to tell you, when you are soft and sensitive to the movement of God, God is going to carry you sometimes into places and situations where you look around and go, this is a bit odd, Lord. I'm not sure I would have, I don't understand what's going on here. Don't think Ezekiel was any more impressive than we are today. I have no doubt that Ezekiel had questions. He seems to have been wise enough to have just been quiet and listen. It was very different if God had done this with Peter. But he brings Ezekiel out. The, the valley floor is full of dry bones. And the Lord continues to speak, verse 3. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? Son of man, can these bones live? Now, if you notice Son of Man there, and you're familiar with the Gospels, you'll understand that Jesus was very familiar with the book of Ezekiel. And he reaches back and he applies this term that God the Father, Yahweh, had given to Ezekiel to himself as the true Son of Man, who speaks and acts on behalf of God and brings the only new life that you and I can ever experience, the only new life that we so desperately need. Can these bones live? Now, if you've been tracking with us, you might remember that when God asks a question in the Old Testament, it's not because he's curious. It's not because he doesn't already have an answer. It's because he's getting ready to act. It's because he's getting ready to act. Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Let me ask you this morning, how is it ultimately that you understand God? What's your theology of, of God the Father? We find a lot here in this phrase from Ezekiel when he simply says, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. 
He says, God, you're the one that needs no answer from human beings. You need no guidance from your creation. You are the creator. You are sustained by your own glory and your own power. And you need nothing from us. It's an answer that flows from a place of humility in Ezekiel's heart. You ever had the opportunity to be around somebody who's just deeply, deeply humble? Like those who are deeply, deeply humble are even beyond their own awareness of their humility. Like you know you're just beginning the road when you sense that you're getting more humble. I just feel more humble each day. Extremely proud of my movement in humility. Right? But every once in a while you're just around someone who has such humility. And humility brings a sort of joy, a sort of joy to life. Because you have nothing to prove to anyone. You're not afraid to say, I'm, I'm on this journey, I'm learning. There's only one that knows it all, only one that's great, and I'm not him. But I know him by God's grace. I'm in relationship with him through faith in Jesus. Ezekiel says, Sovereign Lord, only you know. Only you know. Now look at verse 4. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now, to prophesy mostly in the Old and New Testament is to not foresee the future, but it is to speak forth a message on behalf of God. That is what prophets did. They were called by God, they were given a message by God, and they were commissioned by God to deliver that message to his people. Sometimes to the nation to the nations or leaders beyond his people. So God is, in a sense, um, enlisting or re-enlisting Ezekiel here and saying, I want you to bring a message to these dry bones. Now, if we're honest, we've spoken to some odd things, haven't we? You ever find yourself just speaking to nothing? Some of you will admit that. I find myself alarmed sometimes by how people speak to animals. Maybe that's because I grew up in a ranching family, so animals were a commodity, Right? But anytime I see someone doing baby talk to an animal, oh, kooky, pooky, pooky, that it weirds me out. Um, I find that strange, you know. Um, I was watching an individual the other day uh, with a dog in a subdivision. So uh, they're out walking the dog, and they've got their little bag and like a rubber glove. And I'm thinking, this is a funny picture of human beings, right? And if this is your game, don't email me. It's okay, right? You follow your dog. You pick up the poop. That's fine. You should do that. That's responsible. Um, but I just thought how strange it is. We're the highest thing on the food chain, right? And we're following a little four-legged furry friend around, picking up whatever they drop in the grass. I didn't plan to say that. But, <laughs> but we, we talk to some odd things sometimes, or to just nothing. But God calls any commissions as equal at this point. I want you to speak to the dry bones. I want you to speak to the bones around on the ground. The only picture I have for this is not as vast as it would be here, but we grew up, we had a certain section of one of our pastures where we would drop off dead cattle or dead horses, so um, those bodies were in one area. So if you're moving around there during different times of the year, and there's nothing decaying, they're just bones all around. Bones all around from animals that have gotten their legs caught up somewhere, or gotten sick and died, or whatever the case is. Bones all over. So there are bones all over this valley floor verse 5 this is the message he's delivered that is to deliver this is what the sovereign lord says to these bones i will make breath enter you 
and you will come to life. The Hebrew word for breath is the same as wind or spirit. God's saying, I will give my life force, my life force to these bones, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Let's deal with that just a little bit here. The the picture that you see here of God putting his breath in these bones and them standing up and coming to life. I mentioned some weeks back, but I'm going to pull it back in here for this. Uh, Any of you ever seen uh, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the very first one, classic? Excellent. I hope they don't do with Indiana Jones what they did with Star Wars and make like 37 more of them at some point. I hope there's like no hidden agenda there, just the solid three and a half, the fourth one, whatever, that's there. Raiders of the Lost Ark, if you remember at the end, right, when the Nazi submarine comes uh, inside this island and they get the ark out uh, and the Nazi priest is there and he opens the ark, do you remember what happens? It's kind of weird spirits, this wind and breath and power begins to come out of the Ark of the Covenant and spreads around. And then decimates all of the Nazi soldiers. But if you remember, there's one or two people that get especially uh, a generous dose of it. Right? And they just begin to disintegrate from the outside in. The skin goes, the flesh goes, the tendons, the sinew, all of it right down to the bones. And then they just become dust. Right? It's like if you took a snapshot of any of our lives and just hit fast forward, that's coming for you. Right? It's all of us. This is a, a picture of the reversal of that. You've got all the bones there, but God's going to bring new life to what only looks like death. And don't miss this. He says at the end of verse 6, Then you will know that I am the Lord. God's work in God's people reveals to us and to the world watching God's truth. God's work in God's people reveals to us and to the world watching God's truth. What do I mean by that? I mean that if I say I have somehow come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and that God loves me, and I love God, and he's changing my life, but I'm arrogant, and I'm mean, and I'm greedy, and I don't care about my family, and I'm not fun to be around, then anybody who's around me and says, okay, this is... So if this is Christianity, then one of two things is taking place. One, your, your God is a sham, right? That's not real. Or it is real, and he does not produce the kind of life that I want. But over and over and over, we see again that what God does in us as we learn to relate to one another in unique ways as brothers and sisters in Christ, as we learn to forgive, as we learn to to allow God to turn our hearts inside out and we begin caring about those who live on our street, we begin caring about those that we work with. We begin caring about those that we see in drive-through lines and places where we exercise and, and do hobbies. It is a testimony to the truth of God's character and the goodness of His nature. He says, I'm going to breathe new life in you. And when... I do, you will know that I am the Lord. Now, it's possible, likely probable, that 
people were experiencing confusion during this time. They're in a foreign land that worships foreign gods. And in their minds, their God had been conquered by those foreign gods that had empowered the Babylonians to come in. Now part of what the prophets are doing is, is helping to unravel that thinking for them. And not only that, but to tell them, you know, you are where you are, not in spite of God, but because of God. God was patient. God showed loving kindness for generations. But finally, God's judgment came. And God's judgment came through the Assyrians and through the Babylonians. You are where you are because of God, because of your behavior. Look at verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling around. And the bones came together, bone to bone. I mean, can you imagine, seriously? Like, I find most things amusing. So I think I would be stepping back going, let's see. Let's see if I just keep talking, what will happen. So he's, he's prophesying, verse 8. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them. And skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. Do you think Ezekiel fully understood what was taking place as he was prophesying? I don't think he did. I don't think he did. God often calls us to take steps of obedience and faith into places and situations and futures that we don't fully understand. He simply says, go, and we say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, we trust you. Verse 9, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Now, hear God's description of himself here. He's agreeing with Ezekiel. You got your theology right, Ezekiel? I am the sovereign Lord. Come, breath, from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. Can I tell you that this, this is the true cry of our hearts. Deep in the heart of every human being, whether or not we realize it, whether or not we will submit to it, is this cry for God to come and to breathe new life into us. I mean, honestly, isn't that at the bottom of your soul, the desperate cry of your life day in and day out? God, breathe new life into me. By the way, like I hear the banging of my mic. Don't worry, it doesn't bother me. So we'll just keep rolling until it gets terrible or someone brings me another one. So I'm just going to keep preaching. So don't worry about it. There's no effect on me at all. Um, look at verse 10. So I prophesied as he commanded. Here Ezekiel is living in obedience again. And breath entered them. And they came to life and stood up on their feet a vast army. Friends, this is a picture of redemption. It's a picture of restoration. It's a picture of resurrection. Of making old things new. Of making dead things come to life. And I'll just say this. God has done here what he just promised to do. But I feel like I need to say this, that the vast, vast majority of the promises in the Bible are only true for followers of Jesus. They're only true for the people of God. Every once in a while I've, across the years, seen someone clinging to a Bible verse who had no more regard for Christ or for God or for the rest of his word 
than a fence post. And I, I so wanted to say, you know, that, that one verse isn't going to help you. Because what you and I need more than a promise from a verse is a Savior. It's someone who can remove our sin and the obstacle between us and God. Someone who can cleanse us and purify us. They stand up on their feet a vast army. Look at verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Tell me you haven't felt this in your life at times in one way or another. Tell me at one time or another, pre-Christ certainly or even post-Christ, Meaning post the time when, when Jesus became real to you and you surrendered your life to him. And you were redeemed and restored and reconciled to a relationship with God. Tell me there wasn't a time when you didn't feel your hope gone. When you didn't feel dried up and cut off. When you didn't feel an awareness of God's presence. When you didn't feel like maybe, maybe it wasn't an issue inside of you, but it was things around you where you looked around and said, there's absolutely no hope. Things are dried up and cut off. We serve a God who breathes new life into dead things. We serve a God who revives what is dried out. And Ezekiel is finding this, and God is revealing to Ezekiel that he's going to renew. That the covenant God has not left his people. God never, ever leaves his people. Ever. Verse 12. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. Part of what he's saying here is you're going to understand in more glorious ways the truth of who I am than you ever could have understood had you not gone into exile. If you had just stayed in your land with everything up and to the right, living however you wanted, you would never have understood who I am and who you are in me in a way that you're going to when I bring you back from exile. And this is good news not only for us personally, but it's good news in a land where an average of around 8,000 churches a year are closing. Now about 1,500 a year are opening, but that doesn't touch a population that continues to explode. And still... An average of 8,000, sometimes as high as 10,000 a year. In the United States, churches are closing their doors. So not just in your life, but in this church and in the church across our land where we live, that is our earthly home. We pray for this renewal. We pray for this revival. We're reminded that we serve a God who gives new life. Verse 14, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will settle you in your own land. What he's saying here is I'm going to keep my covenant promises. And friends, I can say that to you this morning. 
God will keep his covenant promises to you. Every promise in Jesus Christ is indeed yes and amen. God will not abandon you. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken. And I have done it, declares the Lord. I have done it. God is the one who fights on behalf of his people. God is the one who brings us back from disobedience and unfaithfulness and restores us to sweet places of fellowship with him. This is a picture of God saying, with me there is always hope. There's always hope. And this is what God had promised. If you look back at chapter 36, at chapter 36 we see both a promise of what's coming in 37, what is so poignantly envisioned from Ezekiel, but ultimately what is coming in and through Jesus Christ as he gives the Holy Spirit to his people. Look back at verse 36, beginning with verse 24. Verse, chapter 36, beginning with verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries, and I will bring you back to your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you will be clean. I will cleanse you, listen to this, from all your impurities and from all your idols. From all your impurities and from all your idols. Man, how many of us wouldn't love to throw up our hands in total freedom this morning and say, I can tell you, I struggle with my own impurities and my own idols. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you. Do you, do you hear the foreshadowing of what's going to come through Jesus Christ, his resurrection? And on that great day of Pentecost, as God pours his spirit out on his church, I'll put my spirit in you and move you, move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. God puts his spirit in his people. He gives us a new heart so that he can move us. To be obedient people with lives surrendered who are indeed lights to the nation. Church, we don't exist for ourselves. We don't exist to appeal to the already church in our community. We exist by the resurrecting power of God, spirit-giving power of God to join him on mission. As he is our God and we are his people. And to live and to operate and to have our hearts set on the unreached, unchurched, and lost in our community and around the world. The unreached people groups of the world. We're going to talk more about that in coming months. But what I mean by that is primarily that 1040 window, which is mostly the Middle East down into East Asia and especially India, where we have this vast majority of unreached people groups who without external gospel witnesses simply have no gospel witness there. 
God doesn't bring us back to life for no reason. If a church isn't going to be on mission with God, a church has no business being alive. A church has no business being open. We're called to join what he's doing. Here's the remarkable thing about Ezekiel 37. God could have said, this is the kind of God I would be. I would not be a good God. Come here, Ezekiel, sit down. Watch what I'm about to do. You're going to like this. And just do it himself, right? Miss that great prayer. God, do something big, but do it through me so that others can see. But that's not what he does. He says, you, Ezekiel, son of man. In other words, you're not me, you're you. You're not creator, you're creation. But I'm going to use you. And God doesn't do it on his own. He does it through Ezekiel. God's going to use you to reach your neighbors, you to reach your lost friends. And if you don't have any, it's time to make some. You to reach your coworkers who don't get church and don't care about the Lord. He's going to use us. He doesn't revive us and breathe new life into a dying people for no reason. So um, as the band makes their way back up here and, and we begin to transition, I want to call us this morning to pray. I want to call us to prayer just for a few minutes. And I want to challenge you specifically to pray for God's Spirit to breathe new life into you. I want you to pray for God's Spirit to set your heart on fire for Him and for those who don't yet know Him and to set our church on fire. Would you do that this morning? Would you pray that God would so uh, empower us and, and so fill us with his spirit that we can't be still and we can't be quiet, that we can't be calm, that we've got to speak what he's doing. Ask him to breathe new life into dead places, to revive dry spaces. And as you do, pray for you and your heart. Pray for your home. That your home, you would begin to see your home again or maybe for the first time as a mission outpost, as a gospel outpost on your street where people ought to be able to find good news. And this is true if you're not married, if you're single in here, that your home would not simply be a Netflix outpost, right? Or a YouTube TV outpost. Or whatever your favorite food is outpost. But it would be a space that you go back this afternoon or this evening and you get on your knees and you say, God, thank you for this physical space. I give it to you. I consecrate it before you. I consecrate myself. Let people find hope in these walls. Man, if you're married, if you're a follower of Jesus in here and you're married, maybe some of what we struggle with in marriage is because we've lost sight of the fact that God put us together as spouses for His glory and His work. He put us together as spouses so that we could complement one another. And we could begin engaging a lost world for His glory. And if you've got kids, God, if you've got kids, may you have bigger hopes and dreams for them than that they're popular, pretty, and athletic. Then they make the traveling ball team. We need to expose our kids to the broken places. They need to see poverty. They need to be out and see the gospel at work in other countries. This is where we're going as a church, church. 
This is where we're going. So I just call you to pray for that this morning. And finally, pray for our church. Plead for our church that God would set our hearts collectively on fire. That God would begin doing a work in here and a work through us in every gathering of Lost Mountain people that we just have to step back and say, God, I know that you are the sovereign Lord. Because we haven't seen people coming to faith like this in a long, long time. We haven't seen marriages reconciled and addictions broken. I'm going to ask you, if you will, as John and Tori sing over us now for just a minute, if you feel led and prompted, get up. Come up to the front, kneel and pray for yourself, your family, your home, your street, this church. Pray that God would set us on fire. I'm going to be down front praying. If you don't feel comfortable with that, sit where you are and pray where you are. Just allow John and Tori to sing over you. But if you will, come join me in the front. Let's pray.